And as we begin, we see that Jesus is talking about prayer. And there's almost a contrast between our first reading and our second. The first reading where Jacob wrestles all night and he is terrified out of his mind that the brother that he had last seen a decade or two previously wants to kill him. And now he is that much more vulnerable with the wives that he has taken, which coincidentally is not according to God's design, and also the children that he has. And he wonders, how is it that God will keep his promise of bringing me back to this place? How is it that God will keep his promise of a savior, exactly as Isaiah, as as his father Isaac had blessed him? How is it that he would have any sense of safety when moving back home, back to the land of Canaan, when his brother is the one who can ride out with an army and Jacob is concerned about the children who are still in diapers? And then our second reading in, um, in John's letter, John's letter, which probably circulated around Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And John says we can have absolute and complete confidence that if we ask anything according to God's will, then he hears us. How do you reconcile that? That Jacob has to wrestle all night, that he is wrestling all night in prayer, and that, that John says, if you ask according to God's will, then God says yes then God will answer you. And one might think that, well, the easiest answer is to ask according to the will of God. But that's not a complete solution, now is it? We know the will of God from the revealed word of God. We know what God and his, um, what his work has been in the past, and we know his intention for his people today. But we don't always know what God's will is in the very things that we might be praying about. And we don't want to end up throwing our hands up and saying, well, I am so confused what I should pray about. We don't want to be so confused that we we miss the forest for the trees, so to speak. We don't want to be so wrapped up in trying to discern, understand, or come up with what God's will is that we are so concerned about what we ought to pray that we miss actually praying. And that question is of how do you pray and what is it that I pray for? It's a question that has come up among Christians and among um, non-Christians alike. And it's a question that often among the non-Christian is phrased as, well, why? Why do you pray? The Christian more so wonders, what should I pray about, and how should I pray? And the non-Christian wonders, why do you pray? Do you pray simply because it's grounding and it's a quiet few moments of meditation? Do you simply pray because, um, not that you can change anything outside of you, but that prayer changes you? That's about the best answer that the world around us would have to give. That prayer works because it changes us. That prayer works because it it helps us to regulate our breathing and calm our hearts. 
and gives us a sense of peace that someone or something within this universe is going to watch out for us. But that question of how do we pray as Christians very nicely interlocks with the question of why do Christians pray? And Jesus answers both in our gospel reading today. And in this gospel reading, we see that Jesus, again, um, addresses us with a parable. And the parable, again, not of a crooked CEO as we had last month, but of this unjust judge. This judge who perhaps um, was known for taking favors or cutting a deal and being unfair. Instead of, instead of applying the law fairly across the board, playing favorites and favoritism and maybe having a handout behind him that if you needed to change his mind, you could do so. And here's this woman who comes to him time and again. She has no one to advocate for her. And given the circumstances in their day, that if somebody were suddenly widowed, that they didn't have life insurance policies the way that we do. If somebody was suddenly without a spouse, then that person would be left to their own devices to try to get by on the charity of the community, to get by on whatever work maybe that deceased spouse had put in and arranged. But this woman doesn't have anything. She's, she's counting the, uh, the dollars and cents and wondering about um, you know, Medicare and Social Security, if that. And, and we don't know, Jesus doesn't give us any particular details on what the setting would be, but it doesn't matter. Because this judge doesn't see any value. He doesn't see any value in answering this woman, in providing her any sort of guidance. He doesn't see any value in just deciding her case. And Jesus holds her up as an example of prayer. An example of prayer that is so persistent that the judge says, man, I just got to be done with this. Like this has been dragging on for, for six or seven weeks. And I've got to find some way to, to get back to my normal life or else she's just going to wear me out with, with all of this questioning and all of this asking. And that's what Jesus uses to describe both how we ought to pray and why we ought to pray. Now, obviously, there's more to prayer than we have here. But Jesus uses this unjust judge as an example for you and for me. And more so, he uses this, uh, this very persistent woman as the example of Christian prayer, of how we ought to pray and why we ought to pray. Now, the first, um, first question of how we ought to pray, that you and I know this, even if we haven't thought about it thoroughly, that prayer only happens in faith. That somebody may devote hours and upon hours to what they call prayer. That there are even certain religions in this world that designate you know, different hours for prayer five different times a day and you have to face a different certain direction and you have to say certain prayers. Well, that's not prayer. At the best, it's, um, it's a sacrifice of, of worship offered to a demon. Terrifying thought. But prayer only happens in faith. That apart from faith, God shuts his ears, as he says even in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 59. He says that even though he knows everything, even though God hears and sees everything, 
At the same time, where there is no faith, then God shuts his ears and says, I'm not listening to you. So how do we pray? First of all, it has to be in faith. And that's part and parcel of being being a Christian. That God gave you this faith, that God planted it in your heart, and that God made you a Christian so that So that even though you might not end every prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, the attitude is of one, uh, of like a dear child asking a father or a mother. Um, That's the same sort of attitude and relationship that this child of God asks our dear father. That we approach the one true triune God in prayer to request something. And that that prayer also is in line with God's command to pray. That as God talks about in the second commandment. How are we to use God's name properly? We should fear and love God that we do not use his name to curse, swear, lie, or deceive, but call upon God's name in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. And so we see how we are to pray. And that as a Christian, you can pray whenever you'd like. And that as a Christian, you can pray about whatever you would like. That as a Christian, you know that you've got this direct line to the Lord and that he has promised to listen to you. And on top of it, he has commanded you and me to pray, which also also results in and is clarified by this relationship that he talks about in Luke chapter 18. How are we to pray? And he follows it up by holding up this woman's persistence as an example of prayer. This persistence, time and again, that she didn't just say, well, I I sent the message once and, um, and I'm just waiting. That she prayed persistently and Jesus uses that as an example of faith. That faith doesn't just say that, well, I said it once and I prayed about it one time and I can move on from there. But faith, as Jesus has an example for us today. Faith says, I know that my Lord wants to hear. And I know that my Lord will never get tired of hearing. And he is nothing like this unjust judge. He's more like the dear father that we hear about in the Lord's Prayer. And as a result, I ought to, and I can, bring everything to him at at any time. Whether it's, you know, sitting at the stoplight, or whether it's waking up in the middle of the night. That even if you don't have a friend that you can text right in the middle of the night, and and if you don't, um, text your pastor, I guess. (laughs) We all need a friend like that. But also, even more than that, you have a Heavenly Father who wants to hear from you at all times and who cares about you and who has promised to hear. So then that question of why Whereas the world might say that prayer is simply, it it results in a change within us, or it's that that quiet moment of, you know, two to three minutes or even 30 seconds that helps to regulate our blood pressure and our heart rate. And as long as somebody believes that they're part of something bigger, then it um, assists the medical outcome. That if somebody believes that they are associated with a religion, that their hospital stay will be shorter and that their eventual health outcome will be better. They've done studies on that, (laughs) trying to figure out what is the power behind prayer. But why do we pray? Because our Lord commanded it. 
and he promised to hear it. And Jesus goes through this entire parable talking about this unjust judge, and in the background, your, your wheels are spinning as a Christian, and you're saying, you know, my Lord isn't like this unjust judge. At the, he, he is very just and holy. And on top of it, he has done the work to bring me into this relationship of like a parent and a child, where we can address him as, as a dear father. Whether you had an excellent, loving, caring, and warm father, or whether you didn't, you have a heavenly father that supersedes all of them. But that final question just leaves us shaking our heads. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he? That if, if prayer is characterized by this sense of persistence, and if a Christian's faith and the life of the Christian church is characterized by this sense of persistence, will he find faith on the earth? And understanding that, that prayer is part of our obedience under the, the third use of the law, that this is our, our thanksgiving to God, that this is something that we do joyfully, not out of obligation, but something that flows from a heart of faith, and something that is fed by and even guided by the words of Scripture. That prayer isn't me speaking to God and God speaking to my heart. Prayer is fed by the Word of God and me speaking to God and God answering that prayer. But that question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And I've thought about that for like the last... Six days. Not just, not just will he find faith on the earth, but the broader question, why does Jesus drop that on us right here? He just got done talking about prayer. He just got done talking about the blessing of prayer and about the fact that we have somebody who is far greater than an unjust judge. And then he says, in conclusion, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And about the, the best explanation that I could come across or come up with is that with that statement, Jesus expands our view. Jesus expands our view beyond just talking about prayer, but talking about the entire life of the Christian church, the entire life of the individual Christian under the cross, the entire life of living out and carrying out the daily tasks of our vocation, and the daily contact with the Word of God. When the Son of Man comes, do you think he will find faith on the earth? That if faith is characterized by this persistence, Jesus is giving us a strong warning that we don't just get caught up in the details and the nuts and bolts the, the question of justice and injustice of Luke chapter 18, that we don't just get caught up in the details of our daily lives and, and wishing and hoping that they would be changed, but also, also the broader image and the broader viewpoint that the Christian life across the board is characterized by persistence. 
is characterized by this persistence that doesn't go up and down with the emotions of the sentiment and the emotions of what looks like success versus what looks like fa failure, that the Christian life is characterized by persistence in every way. And then we see that. We see that most clearly, perhaps, in prayer. But we see it also in every other element, every other way in which we exercise our faith. That the Christian life must be characterized by this persistence that says, like we talked about last week, if you didn't get one of those um, full-color booklets, here's the plug, I guess, the first one. If you didn't get one of these on the way out, um, make sure you grab one today, and I can print more if we need them. That the Christian life is characterized by persistence that says, I know what my God has promised. He promises that his word works. He promises that he gives spiritual resurrection through his means of grace. He promises that his word and his church will remain through the end of time. And that means that we persistently use what our Lord has given to us, regardless of the circumstances of the world around us, regardless of the rejection and apparent failure or the success and the apparent reception of that word. That our actions, even as a congregation or as individual Christians, um, aren't looking for what the specific outcome will be, but our individual responsibility on our so-called inputs. We ended up talking about that for, I don't know, 20 or 25 minutes during our Friday afternoon Bible class. And when I say we, it was probably just, probably just me, but talking about the fact that when churches go about making plans and when Christians go about looking and thinking about how and what can we do for ministry and how can we carry out this ministry and how can we work together, that sure, we might have some goals in place, but the only, the only purpose of a plan like that is to give us a little bit of guidance and discipline in our responsibilities today. And even if the plan is beautiful or, or a very you know, large and expansive plan, if it's something that is worthy of the Wells connection or not, that's not the point. The point of the plan is to encourage Christian persistence. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And is it possible that you've felt a little bit discouraged to see where does my persistence lie, that I've been persistent in a long time, and it looks like everything in the world around me is fighting against what I want to carry out. When it looks like, um, whether we're talking about the economy or talking about trends in our nation or trends among people and what is applauded in the public sphere and what is downgraded, it looks like, and it would be enough, that Christian faith is pushed to the side and that the Christian church would be at a point of throwing up their hands and saying, what's the point? But that attitude, Jesus says, has no place here because we have a Lord who stretched out his hands to be crucified. We have a Lord who allowed himself to be killed by those who hated him, and yet we have a Lord who walked out of that empty tomb for you and for me. We have a Lord who knew the cost ahead of time, and he persisted through it 
to win your forgiveness and mine. We have a Lord whose resurrection is the guarantee that he hears your prayer, is the guarantee that he blesses your persistence, is the guarantee that even if, even if all the circumstances of this world continue to run counter to everything that you are trying to accomplish within your own home or among our congregation, even if the whole world looks like it's falling apart, we have a Lord who says, Dear Christian, don't lose heart. When the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on the earth because he's promised that. But when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith among those who persist in prayer and persist in his blessings of word and sacrament. He will find faith among those who gather around the Lord's table. He will find faith among those who take the time to instruct their children or grandchildren. He will find faith exactly where he has always made it, among his people. So that you and I don't have to worry, how do we pray? Why do we pray? When do we pray? What should we say? That we have a Lord who has created prayer. He's created the faith within your heart. And he's brought you into this this relationship where he says, when you pray, just say, Our Father, who art in heaven. When you pray, address him with all of your needs, time and again. And addressing him as the most perfect and most loving of fathers. A father who loves to hear and who has promised to answer. Amen. Amen.